out of Acts, since we kind of left Acts anyway for, for Easter. I want to tell you a couple boat stories from the Gospels um, over this week and next week. And this week our text is going to be in Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 14. So if you have your Bibles with, us, with you, you can turn to that passage. Uh, you've probably heard the phrase, you get more what you subsidize and less of what you penalize. Have you heard that phrase, you get more of what you subsidize? and less of what you penalize. I'm not sure Congress has heard of that phrase, but uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, just a good, it's just a good, wise thing to think about related to uh, how your marriage progresses, how you, how you lead in your workplace, what we do as a church, so forth. You get more of what you subsidize and less of what you penalize. And that brought me to this question. Uh, what behavior, there's lots of things, lots of behaviors, right? What behavior should the church most celebrate and what behavior ought the church most criticize what behavior if you could just pick one should the church most celebrate and what behavior should the church most criticize here's another way of asking that question might be helpful Uh, what behavior should we most demand from our leaders what behavior should we most demand from our leaders well you could, you could answer that question. There only, the, only, the only right way to answer that question is to ask this one. Well, how did, what did Jesus do? <laughs> what, was there a behavior that Jesus most consistently celebrated? And was there a behavior that Jesus most consistently criticized? And the answer is yes. We can read through the Gospels and we can see that there is indeed one behavior that Jesus most celebrates. And the flip side, the, the anti-behavior of that celebratory behavior, that's the one he most criticized. And that is... Jesus is extremely intentional about celebrating faith. And he is intentional about criticizing those who lack it. So the answer to the question, if we want to get more of what we subsidize or celebrate and less of what we penalize or criticize or discourage, what's the one behavior the church should look for to celebrate in ourselves, in our midst, in our leaders especially, Faith. If we want to follow the pattern of Jesus, we would say that it should be faith. Let me just read a number of proof texts to you from the Gospel of Matthew, and I could have picked any of them, in which Jesus is really clearly on some sort of a pattern, because I'm going to read multiple passages from multiple chapters, and you can just hear, I'm going to read these very quickly, you can just hear this emphasis on faith. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel uh, have I found such faith. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed, and when Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus turned, seeing her, and said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith be it done to you. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was instantly healed. And he said to them, because of your little faith, for I truly say to you, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, 
you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. So what behavior is Jesus most consistently commending people with faith? And what behavior is Jesus most consistently criticizing people with low faith or people caught in unbelief? And that is certainly expressed in our text today in Matthew chapter and Mark chapter 8. So if you've turned there, you can read with me. Mark chapter 8, verse 14. Remember I said I'm going to tell you a couple boat stories. This is a boat story. Next week we'll do another boat story. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand and this is the same chapter, in fact, in which Jesus had just fed a multitude. Uh, he's referencing something that had literally just happened before they got into the boat. And I also want to key you in on, on one nuance in Matthew's account of this story, because Jesus is, is quoted as saying additional thing in, in Matthew 16, 8, which is Matthew's account of this story. And there he just says, and this makes it more clear for us, I think, but Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith. Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? So this is a story about faith. This is Jesus being critical of his disciples because of their lack of faith. And as I've said, if you go through the scriptures, you'll see that this is the behavior, the flip side, uh, this is the behavior he most compliments or criticizes, depending on whether it is present or absent. And I, I want to ask, ask a question later on in the sermon, like, why is that? but we'll get to there. So I want to I want to start by just giving you an operative definition of faith that's kind of present in a visual way in the story and that is simply that Jesus is there and they're not asking him for anything. So you could just take that as the flip side of faith, right? Uh, faith is Jesus is God exists and he rewards those who seek him. That's uh, Hebrews 11:6 I believe. God exists and he rewards those who seek him. So the kind of visual, storified definition of faith is sitting, sitting right there in the text. Jesus is sitting there. They're worried about not having enough bread. He's the bread maker. That's the disconnect. That's the lack of faith. It's, it's this inability to see that God is right there and that he not only exists, but he's ready to reward those who seek him. I thought I would take you through three of the, the Mount Rushmore of the Reformation kind of definitions of faith, beginning with Luther. Luther said faith is this. Faith is a living, bold trust in God's grace, so certain of God's favor that it would risk death a thousand times trusting in it. Calvin said, now we shall possess a right definition of faith if we call it a firm and certain knowledge of God's benevolence toward us, founded upon the truth of the freely given promise in Christ, both revealed to our minds and sealed upon our hearts through the Holy Spirit. You can hear, like, that one of them sounded really Luthery, and one of them sounds really Calvin-y. You can hear. Now I'm going to give you the Spurgeon-y one. All right, this is my favorite one. It's the simplest. 
Faith is believing that Christ is what he is said to be and that he will do what he has promised to do and then to expect it of him. Faith is believing that Christ is what he said to be and that he will do what he has promised to do and then to expect this of him. So almost every day I eat a steak. Jealous? Jealous much? I do eat a lot of meat. And pretty much every day that I sit down to enjoy my tasty morsel of beef, the dog sits there next to me, and the dog is exercising supreme faith. <laughs> he knows. He knows he's going to get some. Like, it's just part of the deal. It's, 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 it's been such a consistent pattern that he has been Pavlovianly conditioned to know, okay, there's meat on a plate. There's the, the large guy uh, who only likes me sometimes is eating the meat. There will be pieces of this meat he does not want to eat. And I will get those pieces. This is all faith. It's essentially the dog is sure that I exist and that I reward those who seek me. <laughs> and that's what Hebrews 11 says. You know, Hebrews 11 is this classic chapter on faith. And if you haven't read it in a while, you should. But Hebrews 11 6 says, like, you know, without faith, it's impossible to please God. For to please God, you must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And that's the definition of faith. Well, that's the definition of lack of faith that's present in our story in Mark 8, 14 through 20. Um, why is Jesus calling them out? He's calling them out because they are arguing over forgetting bread when they are really guilty of forgetting the bread maker. They got the bread maker. This is sort of be like if, um, if, if we were if we were uh, we, we were at some restaurant or something and we forgot to take cash out uh, to pay for the bill and we look and like, like we're, we're really upset at each other. You know, let's make this my wife and I. We're just like barking at each other. Who, who forgot the ATM card and so on and so forth? And like we're just making a scene, right? That we would not do this. Uh, anyway, we're making this scene and like to every other observer in the restaurant, we're making this scene literally right in front of an ATM, you know? Uh, that's, that's what's happening in this passage. They're, they're, they're arguing over forgetting the bread, but they're really guilty of, and Jesus is criticizing them for forgetting the one who makes the bread is right there in the boat with them. And Jesus is extremely, extremely, well, critical of this sort of low faith. And he will call it out consistently, and I'm going to explain some of that here in a moment, but maybe you've heard of C.S. Lewis's description of, you know, God has made these unblushing promises. That's how he says it. You know, when we consider the nature of these unblushing promises, God has made these bold promises. And then he talks about kind of a low faith condition that looks at all of those unblushing, bold promises and kind of prefers, well, how does he, how does he say it? Prefers to play in a mud puddle when the opportunity is to go to the beach. You know, and so he kind of he kind of refers to low faith, low desire, this low faith, low desire condition as a kid who would play in a mud puddle. But that's too kind for Jesus. Jesus just says they're like Herod and the Pharisees. Right? Verse 15, and he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So Jesus does three things here as he criticized their low faith. And the first one is he warns them. The phrase, watch out, beware, it's two Greek words. You could just say, 
Watch out, watch out. Because they're different words, though. And the word for, the, for beware that you might see in your text here is a word that just says, be on the lookout for imminent danger. So Jesus is warning these guys, watch out, beware. Do you know what? Prideful people don't like to be warned. It damages their, um, their God delusion. It, it damages the facade that they've worked so hard to cultivate that they somehow have it all under control and that they can foresee all of the imminent risk awaiting their soul. Prideful people don't like to be warned. But boy, we sure all need to be warned. And that's actually, that's actually a pastoral and, 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 and brotherly, sisterly function within the church. If you read through the Scriptures, you'll see that it is a loving thing to warn one another over impending danger. Over even just possible danger, especially spiritual danger, and especially a spiritual danger as severe as unbelief. So he warns them. And then he calls them names. <laughs> he says, you're in danger of acting like the Pharisees and like Herod. And you know what I think about those guys, you know, is the implication. He's, his, his warning is so stern that he says, watch out, beware. You're in danger of looking like the people that I argue with the most. And why is it that they were looking like Herod and the Pharisees, why did, why did Jesus describe that as the, this unbelief as Pharisaical and Herodian? Well, because these are people, leaders, which we'll talk about in a moment, but these are people who had enough information about Jesus to worship him, and yet they refused. They had enough information to bend the knee and submit, and yet they refused. So he warns them, he calls them names, and then he does this whole like... Um, Highly politically incorrect, uh, paralleling with, um, with, with physical and mental conditions. Basically, he's like, are you deaf? Are you blind? Are you slow? Are you hard-hearted? This is how serious Jesus is taking this condition of low faith, and we ought to take it as seriously as well. Why is Jesus taking this so seriously? Let me give you, let me give you two reasons. One, uh, because he loves them, yes, but, but, but also tied into that is that he loves himself. <laughs> in John 3 and in John 4, Jesus refers to himself as a gift. Now you try getting away with that. In chapter 4, Jesus actually refers to himself as a gift to a particular woman. I think this is where God's gift to women came from. Like, Jesus is actually God's gift to women. And he's God's gift to men too. But, but think about this for a minute. You know, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. One of the things we almost never notice there is, is the one who's saying that is Jesus, and he is designating himself as the gift. Jesus sees himself as a gift. In the next chapter, in John chapter 4, he's sitting with a woman at the well, and this woman at the well is, you know, kind of being like all of us are, squirrely and weird, evasive. And, uh, and Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God that was with you, you would ask him for living water. So one of the reasons, I think, why Jesus is frustrated in this moment in Mark chapter 8 is, is that he literally is the gift that keeps on giving, and he's right there in the boat with the people 
who need bread, and maybe he could kind of understand if they'd never seen him make bread out of nothing, but, but they have seen him make bread out of very little, and they have one loaf, and that would be plenty for Jesus to make plenty of bread for them at the time. So Jesus is, is stunned, I think, in a way, by lack of faith when that lack of faith is in his face, because it would sort of be like, don't you understand that I'm the gift? Why are you afraid? I'm right here. Why, why are you worried about not having enough? I'm, I'm right here. I'm, I'm literally in the boat with you. Why, why are you worried? Why aren't you asking for more? Why aren't you expecting more? And then there are these moments in the Gospels when he encounters someone with real faith and he's like, oh, yes, finally, someone understands. Someone understands who I am. Because they're asking, how does he know that? How does he know they understand? Well, I mean, why, what's, what, what's the signal of faith? They're asking him to do things that are impossible. They're asking him to do big things. Like the soldier who says, hey, Jesus, uh, you don't even need to come to my house. I've got a servant. Would you heal him? Just sort of a, like a telemedicine kind of thing. Uh, would you heal him from here? And Jesus is like, I've, I haven't seen this much faith in all of Israel. Jesus is all about celebrating faith. That's good, but he's also all about criticizing unbelief. And so one of the reasons why he's being so critical is because, you know, he's he's right there and he knows he's the gift. And, you know, it's it's sort of like, um, guys, if if you just turned from looking at the thing you forgot to looking at the person you're forgetting, this whole boat would be full of bread right now. It'd be like the, the Panera dumpster. I think there's a second reason that's really clear in our text that he's so critical of unbelief, and that is because unbelief is like leaven. Unbelief is like leaven. Unbelief spreads and grows. And here's the crazy thing about human pride. Not only do we not like to be warned, but we also believe that we can compartmentalize our unbelief. And we can just keep it in one category of our lives. Like one, we're, gonna, we're just going to ignore this verse. We're just going to ignore this moment that Jesus is speaking to us. And we'll escape untacked, intact, uh, unchanged. No, 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 no. Unbelief is like leaven. Jesus says so. And unbelief is like leaven in the way that it permeates the whole being. And so one of the reasons why it's so appropriate to be hard, critical of unbelief, of course, in a very Christ-like, loving, patient way, uh, I'm assuming he's being loving and patient here. He is Jesus after all. But one of the reasons to be so concerned about low faith is, is that it doesn't just stop in one spot. You can be convinced that you're going to ignore or that you should ignore or that you could ignore or that you simply are too weak to obey X, Y, and Z verse. And friends, before you know it, really, seriously, this is well seen and well known and well understood by anyone who's lived a few decades in the church. It all starts with just a little leaven of unbelief. And it grows, and it grows, and it grows. So Jesus is loving them by being hard on them and saying, hey, you can't compartmentalize this. If these thoughts, if this tendency to forget me and to ask big things of me is creeping in over an issue of bread, it's not going to stop there. It's going to keep going. So let's use this imagery um, this, this idea of the disciples in the boat, or you can think of my wife and I in front of the ATM, like something like that. Uh, let's use this imagery 
of the present solution being ignored as sort of unbelief. The, the, the solution that's right there for you and you're not seeing it, that's, I think that's what unbelief is in the Bible. And so let's, let's just use this and think through this for a minute. One, one thing we could say is, is to you this morning is, the way of salvation is here. His name is Jesus. You don't need to add anything else. Jesus is in the boat with us right now. And you can be saved. You can be saved from your sins. You can be forgiven. You can be turned from darkness to light. You can get a new heart. And it's not, it won't happen because you've added something. Jesus, your salvation is not waiting on you understanding more. Your salvation is not waiting on you cleaning something up. Jesus is here. And what unbelief would look like for you is you're looking all around the boat for salvation and Jesus is sitting there in the hall and he's the one who can save you. And all of those other things you're concerned with, those things can't save you. But the thing that can save you is right here. He's here right now. And his name is Jesus, and you know enough about Jesus to say, yeah, I want you to save me. Um, here's another way that, that we could do this. You know, uh, life is not actually as mysterious as we would like it to, to, to be. Uh, the Bible, we have a Bible, and it's sufficient, and it speaks to all sorts of things. And uh, it is through these very great precious promises, it says in Second Peter, that we have everything we need for life and godliness. So we have God's Word. It's in the boat with us. And we're asking all these questions about, like, well, how should we behave or what should we do? And he's like, well, there's probably a verse for it. It's, it and it's already in the boat with you. The, the Word of God is living and active, and, and, and it, is, it is useful, not only useful, but sufficient to make you fully mature and equip you for every good work. So one of the other kind of forms of unbelief we could see is that we got, we got a Bible. We do. We, we got the rule of life and godliness. It's right here. And if you're wondering like how you should live, let's just look at this because it's in the boat with us and it's perfect. It's, it's, it's God's word. It's, it's Jesus's word. But there are lots of people who have this and they've been raised in it and they know it's, it is what it is. And they are in their little boat looking at every other source of wisdom and insight and taking every quiz and every whatever else. And they are looking for anything else. But, but, but this is here. And if you would believe it, you'd make progress. And the third way, um, like a third example of this kind of unbelief problem would be um, just the end of worry and fear is is here. And I would just ask, this is, I think, extremely challenging. It should be challenging. You should feel challenged. How many things did you ask for this week? How many things did you ask God for this week? Here's, here's what I can tell you for sure. You didn't ask for enough. He's right here. Jesus is in the boat with you. Um, you didn't ask for enough. There were moments when you had your own little internal debate over forgetting the bread or someone else forgetting the bread and you had Jesus right there and you just didn't ask him. So one, one function of low belief I want to kind of is I guarantee you, you didn't ask God for enough last week and you should really try to ask God for more this week in faith unto his glory, of course. But our, 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 our sense of the nearness of God 
And the gift that Jesus is, it shows itself in our prayer life. It, it just does. Like what we actually believe Jesus is and how big of a gift he is and so on, it shows itself in, in, how, in how we pray. And I think it was Spurgeon, but it might have been D.L. Moody, who you know, they invited some guy to a conference and I think his name was John and he was a pastor with all these other pastors and he got up and prayed and it was this very flowery and extensive prayer. And I think it was Spurgeon um, who whispered, hey, John, could you just call him father and ask him for something? Because that's, that's faith. That's faith. As Spurgeon said, faith is believing who Jesus is presented to be and expecting his good as a result of who he is. So, there's good news though. And the good news is, is that all of these guys, except for Jesus, will one day die for him. Except for Judas, all of these guys, except for Judas, will one day die for him. But right now, they can't even ask him for a slice of bread. And why is that good news? Well, that's good news because faith can be learned. Faith can be learned. Um, one of the tragedies of empathetic, of a value of empathy, which is, which is a, it's a, it's a, it's a tragedy, it really is, uh, is that we, we are so quick to join people in their moment of helplessness uh, that we, we condition them not to ever expect to like be able to get out of that. And, and so if you were to tell someone who is used to empathetic leadership, hey, you have a faith problem and let's, let's work on fixing that. Well, they would say, well, no, I, I mean, are, are you kidding me? I am a captive of my psychic roller coaster. And like, I, I, what are you you're telling me? I, no, like, that's not love. Like, telling me I should just have more faith, that's not, okay. Jesus didn't love people then. Because he consistently called people to believe and to trust. And that is, in fact, kindness. It is. Um, empathy is just a poison. It's, it's a toxic poison. I'll, I'll talk about that more in the coming weeks in a little bit today. So let's talk about application. Like what is this, this Jesus is in the boat with us, and, um, and, and that means that we should have, if we're, if we're believing, we should look to Jesus for whatever it is, salvation, truth, supply of our needs. How does that kind of work out and apply in life? Well, I want to do something I don't normally do, and that is I just want to talk to leaders for a minute. And, and I, think it's, I think it's valuable to talk to leaders right now because Jesus in this passage is addressing future leaders. He's talking to the future leaders of his church. But I want to do this in a way that also just kind of communicates to the whole church. What should, because this is a question we asked at the beginning of the sermon, what should we expect from our leaders? And I think the answer is, is we should expect faith. What is the one, what is the one characteristic that Jesus most affirms or the lack of that characteristic most criticizes? It is the presence or absence of faith. What should we as people expect more than anything else out of our leaders? Faith. Faith. That's what Jesus expects more than anything else. So there is a tension. There is a tension in this text between pragmatism and faith. Verse 16. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. 
And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? So one way to look at this story from a leadership perspective is that there is a tension between pragmatism and faith that shows up in this text. And that is a tension between the skill, the administrative skill of remembering bread and the spiritual state of remembering the bread maker. You see that? There's a tension between remembering the bread and remembering the bread maker. And you could say that remembering the bread, that's a good thing to do. You just had a bunch of it. It's kind of boneheaded not to remember to bring some bread into the boat with you. So that's a skill. That's an administrative quality. That's a leadership skill. And that's where everybody's focused in this story, except for Jesus. They're all focused on leadership skill, except Jesus, and he's focused on the spirit of Christian leadership, and that is, you're going to forget the bread sometimes, although you shouldn't. But when you forget the bread maker, you are in a heap of trouble. And friends, this is good coaching on how we interact with our leaders, whether that be uh, the leaders of our home or the leaders of our church or the, just the leaders, period. This is good coaching. Yes, do we, do we want to ask our leaders to keep growing in pragmatic skills? Of course. But what should we really, really insist on from our leaders? That they believe God. That they, that they, they have faith. And that they place their faith appropriately in the Lord Jesus. This is sort of a debate that's age-old between the skill of a leader and the substance of a leader. And friends, the Bible places far more emphasis on the substance of a leader. And I'd like to talk about uh, how, I, how, how wives should think about this for just a moment. Um, it's okay to be disappointed when your husband fails to bring home the bread. And that can mean finances. That could mean uh, just forgetting basic things and so forth. There could be a lot of things. It's okay. But, but, but wives, if you would like to be blessed, if you would like to be blessed, here's one thing you should make very clear in your communication with your husbands. I need you to be a man of faith. I need you to be a man of faith. And by the way, I understand that there will be temptations not to be a man of faith and that I may be one of those temptations. Um, and I may over-express over my concerns about you forgetting or failing on bread-related things, but our hope as a family is for you to be a man of faith. So, so there's this tension, and we just need to keep thinking, well, yeah, I mean, it's not good to forget the bread, but it's way worse to forget the one who is the maker of all the bread. The second thing about leadership I'd like to point out here is that we must remember that these men had left everything for him. So the second idea is this. Past faith doesn't preclude present unbelief. Past faith does not preclude present unbelief. Just because someone has had faith in the past, even faith enough to leave everything, doesn't mean they are presently living in faith. And this is what Jesus is seeing with these men who had, at one point, left everything to follow him. He's saying, yeah, that was wonderful. This is a new moment, and I see a little leaven of unbelief creeping in. 
We must remember when we look to our leaders, and if we are leaders, we must remember that we don't lean on past performance like, like all the prospectus you know, say, past performance is not indicative of future results. Like, yeah, people can be faith-filled in the past and over time begin to shrug away from trusting the Lord. Don't ask me how I know that. Never happened to me, not once. The next thing I want to ask leaders in particular is, who is the loudest voice in your boat? Everybody was talking. Jesus was the loudest voice. And so may it be with us. They listened to him. Now, they didn't immediately get what he was saying, but he had the loudest voice in the room. And man, that's what we always want. We always want Jesus to have the loudest voice in our boat. You know, you'll hear a lot about Leader, a feedback being the key to good leadership. And I would just tell you that that has become a new gospel. It's, it's not that it's false. It's, it's true. Feedback is helpful. But it is not the gospel. It is not your hope as a husband or as a deacon or as an elder or as a mother. It, it is not your hope. Feedback is not the gospel. What needs to be done with feedback is it needs to be filtered through a basic question Is this feedback from faith and for faith? Is this feedback, I'm talking to leaders here, is this feedback from faith and for faith? Does this feedback uh, look like Christ's feedback to his disciples? Because a lot of feedback originates in unbelief and fear. And you you just have to hear it and understand where it's coming from. And if you are a leader, you need to understand that your faith will routinely be undervalued. And that's kind of, well, that's kind of crummy. But here's the really dangerous part. Your lack of faith will be extremely over-tolerated. Let's say that again. If you're a leader, people will tend to undervalue your belief, your trust in God. That is what it is. But far more toxic is if you're a leader and you don't have faith, almost no one will notice. And they won't say anything to you about it. People, by and large, just want the bread delivered. It doesn't make any difference to most people whether that bread came from a factory somewhere in Wyandotte County or came miraculously from the fingertips of Jesus. They just want the bread. So if you're a leader, you need to understand that you need to hear the voices that are actually concerned about your faith, and there aren't many of them. Most people are just happy if you bring the bread. Most people, in fact, are a little irritated by faith. Because it disrupts the status quo. It maybe even threatens the delivery of the bread in the short term. Hebrews 11, again, in verse 37, they went about, these men of faith, these men and women of faith, They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, and of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. So, dear leader, Jesus will talk to you, and he will talk to you about your faith, mostly. Not exclusively, but mostly. Listen to him. And if you are fortunate enough to be able to lead people who know what's good for them, then they will speak to you about your faith. This is the one thing we can't. We're going to be raising up new leaders, Lord willing, you know, over the next few years. And this is the one thing we can't tolerate. We can't tolerate low faith leaders. 
no matter how well-educated, well-spoken, no matter how gifted, this is the one thing we can't tolerate. We can't tolerate low-belief leaders. And it's the one thing, young people, that can make up for all the lack of skill in the world (laughs) in the short term. Eventually, we'll get annoyed that you keep forgetting the bread. But in the short term, if you will just trust God, (laughs) if you will just be a man who says, this is what God says, and this is what I'm going to do, well, then my goodness, you'll get all, you will, uh, if I have anything to do with it, you will grow in leadership. So we don't compromise his word and we don't let the low faith coalition tell us what love is. And that's the last point I'd like to talk about. A word about love. Is there a possible contradiction between everything I've said with Jesus, like making this big deal about faith? Is there a possible contradiction with that and what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 where he says that uh, now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So you're feeling the tension here? you got on the one hand Jesus really emphasizing, really emphasizing faith. And then you hear Paul say something like, love's the greatest. You know, you don't have a hall of love chapter in the, in the New Testament. You know? But you've got a hall of faith chapter. So what's going on here? What's, where does love fit into this? Well, we discern love how? How do we define love? How do we know what love is? Well, 1 John's a great book for that. And let me just go through three verses very quickly. We really are almost done. Thanks for your patience. 1 John 3.16 By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. 1 John 4.10 In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 4.16 So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So, so here's the deal. How do I know what love is? I have to view it by faith. I only know what love is because I'm by faith viewing the truth of the gospel. My capacity to even understand love is dependent on my capacity to see God, and to see his gift. My capacity to understand love is dependent on my ability to see God. So there is a vital connection between faith and love. And this is one of the reasons why I believe Jesus is emphatic about faith because here's the deal. Love is faith grown up. Love is faith grown up. That's kind of what Paul gets at, I believe, in 1 Corinthians 13 where he says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child and I thought like a child and I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. This knowing fully, this knowing, knowing faith, uh, that's, that's, the, that's the correlation between knowing and love. Love is faith grown up. How did Jesus go to the cross? How did Jesus demonstrate his love for us? He did that in faith of the Father's will. Love issues out of a clarity about what God is saying and what God has done. There's a moment when in Luke 17, (laughs) Jesus says, 
to the disciples, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. And did the disciples say, oh Lord, increase our love? No. They understood that in order to be that loving, they would have to have a faith that sees that God is near and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. He understood, they understood that to love well, they must have big faith. They knew that faith is love grown up. So let's just end by this statement. Those who are low in faith cannot be high in love. Those who are low in faith cannot be high in love. Now the church must love those who are low in faith, but they must never be given the authority to implicitly or explicitly drive the agenda of the church. Those who are low in faith cannot lead us in love. They just don't know. They just don't know what love is. But of course you have many who will abandon and and, and cast off major sections of Scripture or even minor ones and, and, and live in a sea of doubt and then take the lead as the teachers on love, that these are people who try to be grown up without ever being children. you got to start with faith. you got to believe the Word of God. you got to believe that Jesus is who He says He is and He's in the boat with us and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. Let's pray. Lord God, would You increase our faith? 